joining our series for a rare and exclusive interview this afternoon is Jeff Chapman, AM founder and chairman of Bangara Family Office. Jeff, you don't give many interviews, so it's a privilege to have you on our program. You've had a, a remarkable career, Sports World Media Group, Benelong Group, Benelong Funds Management and so many other avenues. We'll unpack all of those shortly, but before we do, I want to start with your background. As I understand it, you grew up in New South Wales and then moved to Victoria. Give us a little bit of colour, if you could, about your, your upbringing. It's a pleasure to be here, Rob, and um, uh, if I go back to my early years, um, it was spent um, shifting from city to city. My father, as a lot of fathers of that era, did, worked for the one company from day one to day finish and that was International Harvester Company. It sold trucks and tractors around Australia and he was stationed in Glen Innes and uh, so that's where I was born and then he got gradually promoted um, and so we lived in Melbourne twice and Sydney twice and Adelaide and I, I just seem, in Brisbane, um, I seem to recall shifting from house to house um, on a regular basis, which was an interesting, um, when I look back at it, um, part of um, my character-forming years, if, because you always seem to end up um, going to a new state and a new school in the middle of the year. It was never convenient like to do it at the start of the year and you'd always get put down. Um, so I mean, they don't run a grade two and a half, um, so you'd go down to grade two or whatever. But then I managed to wiggle my way up to grade three or, or the, the next level up on most occasions. And much to do with my um, uh, being a big, child and and uh, um, uh, for my age and um, I seemed to be in in a competitive situation um, at school um, at sport where I was always battling against older kids and um, uh, bigger people and when I look back and that, that honed my competitive spirit um, a little and uh, I finished up always playing sport um, above my year and that kept me on my toes. Um, I remember um, it had its downfalls. I remember um, in New South Wales I was playing rugby, trying out for the rugby side and they have in New South Wales, they didn't have under 13 or under 12, they had under 8 stone 7. So I was under 8 stone 7 and competing against kids, a couple of boys, a couple of years older than me. So I tried out and tried out and tried out for the eight, under 8 stone 7 team and uh, finally got there one training day and the coach tapped me on the shoulder and said you're playing yes so I went home and told my dad excitedly and he said well that's bad luck son because we're shifting to South Australia whereupon um, we moved to South Australia and I they called for volunteers for the under 13b South Australian football team at school and uh I hadn't seen any of this Australian rules played before. I'd just been a rugby man from, um, or rugby boy from New South Wales. And uh, I can remember my first tryout for the whatever it was, Bs or Cs, and mother and father standing somewhat um, anxiously on the sidelines as I picked the ball up around the full back line, tucked it under my arm and ran the full length of the field, touched it down triumphantly, only to see the whole of the rest of the sports ground doubled up in laughter. Um, as no one had told me you had to bounce the ball or touch it or whatever else. Um, 
So that was an inauspicious beginning to my um, Australian rules football career. And you find your way to Victoria and you attend Kerry Grammar where you excel at sport in particular in the first cricket team as well as the first football team. Tell me about your time at, at Kerry Grammar and, and how you were able to excel, particularly in football, in around about 1965. The competitive spirit that I just mentioned has a lot to do with it um, and that translates, I think, quite nicely into um, an attitude that is very useful for business or that I've found very useful for business over the years. But in, in those days, sport was everything. You um, were assessed in your overall character as being a good sportsman or a bad sportsman. And I happened to look up the internet um, to see what they said about me uh, in preparation for this discussion with you and I hadn't looked at it before and I was amazed to see um, a headline just said Jeff Chapman brackets footballer. Jeff Chapman brackets footballer. And I thought hope they write something more on my headstone uh, eventually than just footballer but it was a, a great way to begin. Kerry was a good school. It was a new school of the public schools and that suited me um, and my competitive temperament um, which was taking greater and greater shape because I enjoyed the experience of going up against the older schools, the Melbourne Grammars and Scotches and what have you and that seemed to bring out the best or, or the worst in me, it depends on your point of view. You were the captain of the side's first football team and then I believe you were selected by the Hawthorne Football Club after kicking seven goals, eight in a practice match. What, what happened next? Yes, all that happened a bit suddenly. Um, my parents had been shifted overseas, so I was back here being a 17-year-old um, trying to play league football, trying to play um, district cricket, um, trying to make my way through university and um, map out a career. But it was an exciting period of time. Um, I uh, had a fairly short football career in terms of what was then VFL, is now AFL. But uh, I stand by my remarkable record. Um, I played two games um, I got two kicks and I got two goals. Um, so I had 100% uh, goals to kicks ratio. Now, if you're a coach, um, you'd think, um, well, all I've got to do is get the ball to Chapman and he's going to convert. Um, so it was, I was doing my job. It was the coach who uh, um, didn't wise up to the situation, didn't get the ball to me often enough. That's my story anyway. So Hawthorne Football Club and then transferred to Melbourne Football Club where you played those two games. I also read that you played under the legendary Norm Smith as a coach. What was that like? Yeah, can I contrast um, the two? I played at, um, at Hawthorne um, in the seconds um, under John Kennedy and he was legendary then and even more so now. He was... Uh, someone who you greatly admired. He did all the hard work with you. He'd make you... They introduced the tough training course, torture course, um, down on the Yarra River where you had to carry sandbags up and down the banks and climb ropes and leap tall buildings and do all of that on a Sunday morning. This was extra curricular activity. Training up till then had been Tuesdays and Thursdays, but this was the first sign that AFL was, or then VFL, was breaking out of its traditional amateur, as we would call it now, um, role. And training was starting to become professional. And that was virtually the last time that you could play um, 
first grade cricket and first grade football in in Melbourne or whatever. Then it was forced, the specialisation came and it was forced that you had to make a decision early on. So Peter Bedford, Max Walker, players of that ilk who I played with were um, the last of those that were able to excel at both sports. Interesting. Um, and then that's grown wider and wider apart and only the occasional individual can bridge the gap. Um, but it was a great time and um, I started to form a view as to what I wanted to do in the future and that took up time and effort and probably detracted from my overall performance. I want to ask you about that. So your, your playing days conclude. Where did you see your life heading at that point? Did you have any particular fields of study or interests at that early age? I played the first game of league football, I think I said at 17, um, and straight out of school on the MCG in front of 85,000 people on Anzac Day. So it's a bit different to galloping around the paddock in uh, in a school game. Yeah, I was very interested in, in business. I was probably showed an entrepreneurial streak um, then and I keep annoying my father with, what do you think of this idea? And I'd write it out and, and do a draft what was a business plan. And he said, that's a good idea, and he'd encourage me. And then when I left school and went to university, I, I wanted to pay my own way through that. Um, and some football earnings were accompanied by, I bought a ladies' hairdressing salon in Ivanhoe, because um, you'd seem to be able to buy them fairly cheaply and I think it cost me $2,000 and my contribution was to turn up every Thursday afternoon or evening and pay the wages and um, collect the towels and take the towels home to wash them over the weekend. But anyway, um, and I um, established what you'd call a mobile discotheque where you'd go to birthday parties at home, which was really my audio set um, packed into the back of the car. So I was always trying to do something um, that was connected with business um, that would make me a bit of money and um, set me on the road. And that got me thinking a bit about um, life after a brief football career. I did law at... Um, university, not ever thinking to practice law, but as a point of differentiation um, to the hundreds of students who went and did commerce or economics. That is a feature I think that is, I've stayed pretty true to right throughout, um, is to never be the same as um, everybody else. Um, it doesn't mean you have to stand out, but um, differentiate yourself um, so that you're able to be seen as being different and perhaps better than your opposition or your um, someone else um, vying for whatever it is that you're trying to do. So by this time, it would have to be around about the early to mid-1970s, you've finished university, you've finished your, your football career, you've had the hairdressing salon and, and, and various other avenues that you've explored. What, what happened next? What did you do over that next decade, say from the mid-70s to, to the mid-80s? Initially, um, my first job was with Nilex Corporation um, um, as a management cadet. And then I went back and studied again. I did an accounting degree. Then halfway through that, uh, an investment bank called Chase NBA Group, which was a third Chase Manhattan, a third National Bank and a third um, AC Good & Co. offered me a job, provided I started on Monday. Well, 
there's no decision to make. So um, on Monday I was there duly suited and booted and, um, and so I studied full-time and finished that degree and worked full-time. And that led me to, um, to work with one of my clients, which was uh, a fellow, he was then Don, but later Sir Donald Triscothic, in his group of companies, um, which were mainly under the Charles Davis Limited banner. This was, in, when I tally it up, um, I've had a business career spanning 55 years and I've worked under an employer um, for seven of those years. And this was, with Sir Donald, um, was six of those seven years. So it was a fairly significant part of my business learning took place when I was working there. I left there um, in um, my mid-30s, I suppose I was, um, I said that Sir Donald sacked me. He says uh, that I was always after his job and um, maybe the truth lies somewhere in between. But I've actually um, reconnected with him of, um, of late. He's 92 now. And um, uh, that, that's a picture of him um, sitting uh, behind me. Um, and it's been um, terrific um, reliving our um, seven years together and uh, our business experiences. It was business in the, those days compared to now was relatively fast and, and not so regulated. Um, so you did things and then you worried about the consequences later. There weren't the ASICs and the necessary regulatory bodies that were peering over your shoulder. So we, we have a laugh at some of the things we did and, and whether they'd be the right things to do in the circumstances these days. And from investment banking into sports publishing and, and magazines. So Sports World Media Group launches in 91, but how did that all come about in the late 80s? How did you transition from, from banking and finance to sports publishing? I went through a period, I, I left the investment bank with my swag on my shoulder and, and uh, headed off into the sunset to see what I could make of myself. And I had a period of what I call subsistence entrepreneurship, whereabouts I seemed to make the weekly rent uh, only just um, by doing various things. Um, one I can recall, we bottled mineral water here in Australia under the Billabong brand, pretty original, and exported it to America. And I was on a plane in America um, going from one bottling company to another when I saw a um, television program of the Harlem Globetrotters in Australia. Looked at it, and after ten minutes, I turned it off. I said, "It's the worst program I've ever seen." Except I was on a similar plane a little later that week, and I saw it was the best-rating program on American TV. This troubled me, um, so I thought about it for a while, and I worked out that it was because of the Australian connection. So I thought well, maybe I can. Um, get together some sports publishing material or television material or rights or whatever um, and sell them to America. And um, so I rang up Bill Daniels, his name was, he was the father of cable TV and all this is at a time when terrestrial, the, tr the, the traditional um, Channel 9, Channel 7, Channel 2, Channel 10 were being expanded into satellite and, and cable. So you went from four TV stations to 24 overnight. And they always wanted programming. And it's not just programming to see you through at seven o'clock or eight o'clock. They need programming for 
2 o'clock or 3 o'clock in the morning. So I thought I'd try my hand at producing television programming. Um, I knew nothing about it, but you know, there are books you can read and people you can talk to, so I found out sufficient. And we produced a program called Asia Sports World. So I put that in my briefcase and ran around Asia. And lo and behold, I was surprised that everyone bought it and paid a thousand dollars an episode for it. So by the time I'd finished, I had a provisional $10,000 a week as income set up against um, five and a half thousand to produce it. I went to these production studios that abound in South Melbourne that mainly do advertising, but occasionally um, let their space out to do other um, programming. Anyway, that, that seemed like a good start to me, so we got off and we produced Asia Sports World, um, which was fronted um, by my good friend, uh, the late Max Walker, and um, it was a success. So we did that for a while, and then we thought, well, why stop at Asia? Let's get on our bike and go a bit further. We sold that program, Sports World, and a number of derivatives of it. There was Women's Sports World. We did a program for international cricket. We did a program for football. We're very good in Australia at producing good quality, low-price television product. And um, the beauty of it, from my point of view, was that you only had to produce one program and then you produced multiple copies of it. Um, and the, the purchaser, the next TV station, paid for the copying. So after covering the costs of the central program, which could then go to the library and um, in your P&L account didn't have to be expensed uh, straight away, could go into the library and then amortised um, over a number of years. I thought the deep, deeper I dug into this, the more I thought this is a great opportunity. And so it turned out to be. We set up ourselves against, here's the challenging bit again, um, of me taking on um, Mark McCormick's sports marketing business in, in America. I mean, they were bigger than Ben-Hur. Um, and we took them on, um, at least their television side, and we were able to better them with um, better service and better programming and you know, just went to demonstrate to me that the talent we have available here in Australia in all spheres, not just television or production, is... Um, we ought not to be ashamed for it anywhere in the world. It's great. So you launched Sports World Media Group officially in 1991 and the business over the next four or five years grows exponentially both in Australia and, and into Asia but also into Britain. Tell us about the, the expansion into the UK. Well, as I said before that you got $1,000 an episode when you went round Asia, um, I went to Germany eventually and um, I can't remember the name of the network but it loved the programming and it paid $17,000 an episode so I, I was um, obviously attracted to the, um, the economics of it but being in the sports business, the sports business moves with the sun and the Australian summer it's down here with the Australian Open and the then big golf events that we had that have shrunk to nothing and then moved to Europe and the UK in the uh, Australian winter, uh, the northern summer. So my movements tended to be um, along with that and um, we built up quite a following in, uh, in the UK. Um, we got the program on to ITV, which was one of the main 
terrestrial stations. It's amazing what um, you can do um, from Australia and if you use the Australian reference it can quite often stand you in good stead. Um, I'm amazed at the people I was able to talk to and I'd get on the phone here in um, in Melbourne and I'd say ding, 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 ding. this is Jeff Ch Chapman calling from Melbourne Australia and you could hear the intake of breath from the receptionist at the other end she said you say Melbourne Australia and and quite often that got you through to the person that you wanted to speak to or someone of authority that um, you perhaps wouldn't have been able to otherwise so the the business grew and um and I played a lot of cricket in um in the UK, which I was very fond of. In fact, I played cricket up until um, 10 years ago. Um, um, the, the wickets are softer in the UK, so, and you don't have to run as fast. And it's always been a second home. Um, um, we go back there, um, my wife and I, um, every year for... Um, as it turns out, the Australian winter, and um, and we still have business interests there, as uh, you know. When I sold out of um, uh, Sports World, um, it it did remarkably well on the stock exchange. Um, um, we had had a couple of approaches. Um, from UK companies to buy us. And so I went to have a look myself and thought that a, a modest IPO or via a backdoor listing as it then was would be um, the best way to go. And we listed it at um, the market cap of probably $50 million or something like that. And it was the time of the dot-com boom and the saying, content is king. I didn't really understand the economics behind content is king, but I knew it was a following wind and um, it, it, it kept blowing and blowing and our stock price kept going up and up. It'd be nothing for it to go up a pound 50 a day. Um, and it'd be reported on the news at night. So um, we quickly got to the LSX 300, I think, um, in a matter of a couple of years. But I mean, I put that in the context of the times when I um, brought in management and that management then decided um, that they'd make a bid um, for the company and take me out, um, they bid at a, a PE ratio of 70 to 1. I didn't know what 70 to 1 was. It was normally the price of the horse I backed in the Melbourne Cup um, that ran stone motherless at last, but it was a big number and um, I didn't think I'd see that again. And so ultimately... Um, Ten years later, um, sold out and um, and moved on to the next phase. As you said, listed on the London Stock Exchange in January, I think of 1998, and you sold your share around about 2000 or 2001. The market cap was, I think, around 37 million when it was listed, and by the time you'd sold out, it was in excess of 500 million, which is an incredible journey. When you reflect on that, just before we move on, what are your proudest achievements in, in building Sports World Media Group from scratch to, to the business that it was? We, we were talking a little bit before we came on air um, about the, the sense of achievement, whether it's proud or whether you tend to um, just keep it in, internally or be more extrovert in the way you show it. But the sense of achievement in starting a company 
from an idea and a phone call and nothing more than that and seeing it listed and and employ a large number of people in a creative sense um that they were all very challenging and would or stimulating is probably a better word they would keep me up to the mark the the journey was fabulous um just seeing the growth of the company we knew img was much bigger than us but we set out to make as much noise as we could so there might have been only 30 people in sports world media group but if they all stamp their feet on the floor at the same time they're going to make a fair racket and we were busy 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 um and i think our pace of being everywhere um all the time um um, eventually won us a lot of business and a lot of friends and um, we took big chunks away from IMG um, in in the way that we were able to service that business and go on from there. So to say what were the proudest things, um, I was inwardly very pleased and grateful for um, the help of a lot of people in getting there. Following the success that you had with Sports World Media Group, you then returned to Melbourne and launched Betalong Group, a diversified investment house in 2000. To begin with, uh, talk me through the, the initial mandate, if you like, of, of Betalong Group. What, where, where did you see the business heading? Well, initially it wasn't the business. Um, we, we woke up one morning and there was a lot more money in our bank account than there was the night before. Um, and this was a bit startling. And so we thought about this for a while. And a while being a couple of days. And um, my wife, Karina, and I decided to um, that the best thing we could do was to be custodians of that money. Um, and the best way we could be custodians was to do as well as we could with it over a period, a defined period of 20 or 30 years, being the rest of our working life, and transfer it to um, the foundation, both progressively along the way, as well as um, having a, an end date, a sunset date, when everything would transfer. And this rather um, intrigued us and got us inspired and interested in um, philanthropy. So money at bank, um, new challenge. Um, and I must admit there was a, a sense of starting all over again, which I rationalised and thought, well, if you start one business and a success, that can that can be a 60-40 chance that you influence that or 40% that it was luck. If you do it twice in a row, um, then there's more than luck. There maybe is some talent and ability there uh, under, underscoring it. So that got me interested and we decided to uh, give a mandate um, for a portion of the money to a Swiss um, bank um, just to see how that went. And after three months, it went it was going terribly. And so we thought, this is, this is not the way to go. So we, we took it back internally. Um, we said, well, we'll manage the money. So we hired, um, we did a normal asset allocation, blank sheet of paper, assets, um, asset classes, property, bonds, liquid, shares, and venture capital, um, et cetera, et cetera. We did all of that, went through the process. And um, having come out of a, um, a, a sale or a PE environment that was astronomical, I really wanted 
to invest in something that was touchable and feelable and and you could drive around and point at. Hence we bought a number of golf courses in, in the UK. And all this is part of initially investing um, the proceeds of our liquidity event um, so that we could grow them over 20 years to transfer them to the foundation. And then um, the guys that we had hired um, to manage our in-house money turned out to be very, very good and they attracted uh, some of our partners who said, can we co-invest with you? And I thought about that for a long time, um, maybe a couple of years before saying yes, um, because there are additional responsibilities that go with managing other people's money. Um, and um, I wanted to be sure that we were fit for purpose, fit for the journey um, and could do an outstanding job with um, the, the management of other people's money. So we hired in an equities um, trader who was, uh, um, became known as Mr 19% um, um, because over his track record from um, initially investing to um, the end of his days as a, as a trader, he averaged 19% um, on a hedge fund um, and he was remarkable. And similarly, we got um, a great property guy and invested in um, a special class of property and grew the business that way. So it came, <clears throat> came down to a progression of managing personal money to managing personal plus partner money and then partner plus public money eventually. And that's how um, the structure of um, the Benelong Group came to be. And as you said, there's some significant investments right across the portfolio, 60% stake in Golf Club Holdings, which you later rebranded to Crown Sports and now Crown Golf, which is still hold. Uh, I read that there was a, a significant property portfolio as well with assets in, in Melbourne and Sydney and Brisbane and the like. I think that was built up from zero to about 100 million in, in assets in the space of, of 18 months and then subsequently became two, over, worth over 250 million as well. What, what was the key to the group's early success at that time? Was it just a case of having some of those people around, like the equities trader and the property people who were just experts in their field? I think you need to go a bit deeper than that. You have to have, go back to one of my earlier points, a, a differentiating factor. And in regard to property, we reasoned that um, CBD property would rise one year and fall the next and was like approach to investing which didn't really interest us but that if we bought in areas that were the the sub CD if you like then the next main business area that wasn't the CB, CBD in the town so we bought in Camberwell in Melbourne um, in North Sydney and Ryde in Sydney, near the Wollongabba um, Cricket Stadium in Brisbane, just outside the CBD area in a growing business area because we feel that um, people would work less, um, would want to travel less, traffic was going to be a problem, time was going to soak up, education was becoming more important um, so they'd need to be near schools. So there was more pressure on employees to find jobs closer to home than to jump on the seven o'clock um, from Frankston to Melbourne every morning um, um, to get to work. There was an underlying theme and business plan and 
there was a, a definite, this is why we're doing this. There was a purpose about our investing, um, which maybe because we we had done our homework fairly well um, or thoroughly um, managed to come true in most instances. And in terms of building the, particularly the property side of the business in, in such a short period of time, what were some of the key indicators that you looked at? A great um, one for studying and trying to understand human behaviour. Um, when I was expanding the um, television programming range um, from the initial one program, I used to devour newspapers and try and assess via the footage um, that a newspaper gave to a particular subject how important that was and whether it was important on a continual basis or whether it was just a, a one-off crash and bash. And via that means, I used to stand in a newsagent for hours at a time um, um, watching what other people picked up in magazines and looked at and I feel that is a is a basic requirement to most businesses given that we we are in or were in the commercial side of business and commercial in terms of relating to people not just manufacturing something and selling it on as a component part of a larger machine. Um, we were a consumer business, um, all that depended on the habits of consumers. We needed to understand what they were and why they were. And I still think that's the case. Um, I wouldn't... Um, we get lots of investment proposals. A keen student of understanding how people's reaction will be to those investment proposals and what we can do to make them more attractive and increase customer service or um, whatever. And I suppose what I'm saying in the long run is that people are extremely important, not just the people that you employ um, and have on your team um, who are the assets of the group, but the people that you, that are the other stakeholders in your business, the, your suppliers and your customers and your customers-to-be, the ones you want to win over to make your business um, uh, an even bigger success. I do set those more macro um, approaches um, against... Uh, a thorough understanding of economic conditions and what have you. You need to have a number of those factors strongly in your favour um, to make it work. So we've explored Sports World Media Group, we've spoken about Benelong Group. I thought we'd briefly delve into Benelong Funds Management, which as you referred to earlier, opened itself up to external capital around about 2002, 2003. It's been on a remarkable rise since then. I think the official launch was in about 06 and it had about 50 billion of assets under management. Fast forward to 2023 and that number's closer to, to 15 billion, which is incredible. But before we explore that, just take me through the Benelong Funds Management business in terms of, again, how you're able to differentiate it, because it's, as you know, it's such a competitive market, the funds management space. What was the, the niche opportunity that you guys saw? Firstly, the asset management is um, relies on a number of key individuals who are very, very good at their job. And I mentioned Mr. Nineteen Percent. What needed to find a number of Mr. Nineteen Percents or Mrs. Nineteen Percents, as the case case may be, um, and that is an, an underlying. Um, requirement um, and we we were I think in this case um, lucky enough to strike 
um, one of Australia's best stock pickers and he was, um, still is, um, a great investor. He would be known on every institution's um, Australian equities books um, and um, he is um, someone of whom we struck up an immediate friendship and a partnership and um, managed to build the business from there. The differentiating factor needs to be in the people and and in an asset management business which is has unusual individual pressures um, associated with it. The culture of the organisation is extremely important and you read how asset manager A acquires asset manager B and the whole deal falls apart because the culture uh, doesn't work. In fact, um, Perpetual and Pendle, um, a lot of the doing and throwing beforehand and a lot of their decisions um, on how to handle the eventual um, merger of the two companies is based on the cultures of both those companies. Now, they have drawn a line in the sand and said, we'll treat them as separate cultures. That doesn't appear to make a lot of economic sense to me because that business is one of scale. Um, the asset management business is, as you pointed out earlier, um, is one where you can manage the same amount of money um, for a, a, a far greater period and at, um, over a much larger group of, of entities. But th at the end of the day, you need to have, whether it's 50 billion or 100 billion, um, you need to have scale in there to take advantage of the infrastructure that you've had to build to make it work. Culture is extremely important. It's extremely important to us here. And we um, have utilised the Benelong Foundation as an integral part of that culture. It's not drummed into people, but people know that they're not necessarily working to line my pockets or um, so as I can have a, an extra stake a week or whatever, um, they're working for the benefit of the community ultimately because that's where the money is going to end up. And that is something that is now endemic within the group um, and we find that we attract a much stronger talent base um, than perhaps we should because of that and every time we interview someone of we think significance as far as our profile is concerned the second question they ask is I love your foundation um, how do I get involved when people get out of bed in the morning to come to work um, you need to have a, a good reason other than just to go to work and earn a salary and uh, get through to next weekend. And a reason for doing that at Benelong is because you are benefiting the community as a whole. We are hopeful <clears throat> that when the sunset date comes around and it, it is actually a decade between 2040 and 2050 when the money will transfer from the commercial organisations to the um, being principally the golf courses in the UK and Benelong Funds Management to um, the foundation, that it will be a, a big sum of money. And if it is, and if it then goes on to benefit the rest of the community, then um, not only my work, but the work of everyone that's been involved with us will be um, uh, extra special. Absolutely, that's a, that's a fantastic 
approach. I also wanted to ask you about the approach of Benelong Funds Management over the years in that it's taken stakes in boutique funds management firms uh, over the years, essentially centralising a lot of those internal functions being, you know, administration and marketing and, and governance and then just allowing the, the stock pickers in those boutique firms to focus on, on what they do best. Where did you get that model from and, and why, why and how has it worked so well? It put the focus on alignment. Um, so it's an easy story to tell. My, the, the asset manager has an equity stake in his management. Um, so he goes home at the end of the week with certainly with a salary, um, but also with his um, success or otherwise of his fund um, directly affecting his take-home um, contributions. So that is the same, if he does well, um, then the client does well. Um, so there is a direct alignment. The other factor about um, a boutique um, or affiliate um, style group of asset managers is that it is typically capital light. I think the model has moved on um, since we did an establishment since 20 years ago. I think alignment is able to be shown and proven um, in other ways. So I'm in favour of us um, expanding from just uh, having affiliates as our or associates as our um, asset managers into bringing a number of them, the asset manager classes, in-house. And as an example, um, we are um, working very hard on something that involves um, on a sustainability portfolio of funds launch in, in the middle of the year. We think the market has moved um, quite aggressively towards looking for not only a financial return but a social return. In, and that is becoming not only a wish but almost a requirement um, of um, families and family offices and institutions um, investing. So they don't want to be involved in coal or some of the industries that harm the environment or harm nature. They want to be, and they don't want to be now, neutral. They want to be positively contributing in investing in companies that positively contribute to the betterment of our society and the return of our assets, our mountains and our streams and our rivers and our beaches and our land and our oceans, the return of those assets that we have to their pristine natural condition. And I think that's um, that's a sign of the times. It's it's the way the younger generation are thinking, who got behind climate change and made that, and st are still making it such a phenomenon. Their lack of wanting material benefits, as opposed to um, benefits for society as a whole or for the community as a whole. Is, is great testament to their young maturity and um, it's that market that we think is uh, very important for the future. One of the other aspects I wanted to ask you about uh, in regard to Benelong Funds Management is its performance, its historical performance over so many years across so many of the different funds. It's, it's beaten benchmark and beaten benchmark in a comprehensive way. What have been the keys to be able to do that, do you think? I'll, I'll give you a number of um, words, um, most of which start with P. Um, people, purpose, push, pulse. Um, the, the business needs a pulse, um, needs to have a rhythm and, and 
management need to be in charge of that rhythm, need to have their hands on the levers that control that rhythm. So there's three or four um, pulse um, perseverance. Um, that happens to be one. What amazes me, I have vision of the um, the major stocks that we're holding in the various portfolios every week and um, I see situations that um, a manager is continuing with that I would have taken taken the money and run um, some time ago. I would have closed out the position because we'd already made a profit but they have a, almost a a third sight um, into the future and they'll sit and they'll sit and they'll sit on a position because they're convinced in their analysis and they're convinced in their assessment of that company as being um, a long-term winner. And therein lies one of the secrets is that a very good asset management company is one that takes a long-term view but supplements that with, as you call it, above benchmark or short-term wins all the way along the, the line. Our, our um, asset managers are, are very good. We encourage them to be um, part of the, the, the family, the inner circle, and, um, and part of our culture in going forward. That's an argument against <clears throat> the scale that I was talking about further. But if you can keep, if you build your infrastructure in an, in an asset management company and then you can keep adding funds on top of it, scale on top of it, then you keep the same infrastructure. What seems to happen is um, you keep adding incrementally um, as your numbers grow, just because that's what people do. But you need to keep that hard core of um, administration and distribution and compliance and governance and keep them um, performing to the levels that you want to whilst building on your distribution um, overall. As a result, Ben Long has uh, a fabulous name in the marketplace. It is recognised as one of Australia's leading asset managers. And I think um, and hope that it will be seen in the near future as not only um, a highly performing um, but um, progressive um, because I think the market is changing significantly. The asset classes are changing <coughs> um, significantly um, in that um, you used to have three or four major asset classes. Those three or four are now 14 or 15 and that they've each been broken down into subgroups and it it's becoming more a specialist um, game and we need to have people that are not only able to um, see those um, moves coming but position them, us to take advantage of, of those uh, changes in the marketplace and that, that is um, constant work and it keeps us uh, on our toes all the time. And as part of Benelong, there's also been geographic expansion into the UK and the US via Benbridge, as well as into property via key global investors. Was that always part of the plan and, and did that just come about naturally given that you were travelling a lot to, to a lot of those markets? I've always been a proponent of Australia being a citizen of the world. Um, I, I just don't think you can learn sufficiently. Um, uh, Australia is not a sufficiently big market f for you to 
be able to operate in. And so I'm very happy being based in Australia and I love um, the country uh, as a place to live, but I think we need to export our talent um, and export our energy and our drive and our determination to um, international destinations. We've always had that view that that Australia is a great place to be and to manufacture and to have our base, but that base needs to be supplemented by learnings uh, and experiences and, um, in a way, a, uh, a levelling off of risk, a balancing of risk by being in, in some of the other countries. We're a, a member of an international group of families we put together um, about 10 years ago and um, we meet every year as an international group. The rationale behind it is that we each bring the experiences of our countries um, to, to a central table and um, describe what's going on and how our businesses are operating in each of those countries at the stage of being pensioned off. But I come, come away from all of those meetings um, with uh, greater learning and a greater understanding of what is going on overseas, what's important, what people are doing, what they're buying, how they're running their businesses. Um, um, every day is a learning day for me and that's better if that is done on a world stage than just on an Australian stage. I want to ask you about life lessons. What are the most fundamental lessons you've learned over your career, both professionally and personally? My first answer is um, you can't get anywhere without hard work and there are no shortcuts and nor should there be. My, my second answer is um, uh, never, ever, ever give up. There have been cases, and um, everyone can recount their own personal situations, but the spirit and the um, strength that enables you to be true to your purpose and, and stick with that purpose and... Um, never give up on it, especially as we were talking when you were establishing a business and trying to grow it. The rock-like ability to just be immovable despite all the chaos that's going on around you is um, such a great asset to you personally, a great asset to the company, but more to the point is a great inspirer or supporter uh, of, your, of your people. Um, I mean, COVID was like that when the pandemic struck. Every company needed a strong leader, a leader um, someone who was at the forefront making decisions each day. And even though those decisions um, had to be over, overturned largely because the government had changed its mind overnight, um, it was important, vitally important, that people saw the management or the board or the owners or the stakeholders stand up and, um, and lead. There's not enough of that in business today, but I'm sure um, uh, that coming out of COVID um, and coming out of the pandemic, th there will be because that was what got people through um, that uh, torrid situation. My final question is, what's next for Jeff Chapman? Retirement is the word that first comes to mind. Um, but that is proving, uh, and this is probably the second time I've had a go at it, I was fairly successful the first time and managed to melt into the background. The, then COVID struck, so I had to become more involved. It's more difficult the second time around, but it, it'll be uh, achieved.
in the next few years. Retirement is, is a different word to different people. Um, I'd never retire from learning and I'd never retire from passing on um, that learning to other people. If that gets me involved in um, business, um, then I'm all the happier for it. I'd like to see um, my second companies that I was able to build, uh, i.e. the, the uh, Benelong Group, I'd like to see that successfully tucked away somewhere um, and um, doing everything that it should be doing. Um, and if that happens in the next couple of years, as I'm sure it will, then I'd be a very happy man and definitely riding off into the sunset. Jeff Chapman, AM, a legendary Australian businessman, investor and incredibly nice person as well. Thanks for your time. Rob, thank you very much. Enjoyed it.